Well, nothing makes us feel more like a wretch than the conflicts we get ourselves involved with. They seem to be never-ending, right? We live in a, uh, a world-driven and run, conflict abounding, right? Just conflict everywhere. Just in the last week, what did you see? You, just, you saw our, our country get involved with Syria. We're dropping bombs in Syria now because that government wouldn't take care of its conflict, and that's got other escalations for us with conflict with Russia, and the conflicts just mount all around the globe. That's after previous months where conflicts with North Korea and one thing after the next, conflicts. Grab your Bibles, turn to James 4. You're going to hold them open there for a second. We'll get to the reading of that scripture from James 4, but just have that, have that ready as we look to James 4 after we take you through a time in church history. And I just want you to think through this time in church history with me. You've got that James 4 open before you, and we're going to go through a little look at Zurich, Switzerland in 1523. I want you to cast your mind to Zurich, Switzerland, 1523. 23. This is six years after Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation. It's a time of reform. The Roman Catholic system had dominated the area for years, and all of its ways at this point in time are being denounced. Theology and its practice have taken center stage in the culture, and a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli is the leading reformer in, in Zurich at this time. He had a bunch of ardent followers, people who were just uh, radicals, if you will, uh, following him because of the things that he was teaching. He was teaching them the scriptures, which really opposed the Catholic Church. They wanted to see more of the reforms that he was talking about, brought to their city, brought to, the, to, to confront the traditions that Roman Catholicism had burdened the city with. And in, in wanting to see more, they had uh, created a little name for themselves. They were called the um, Radical Reformers. They became the Swiss Brethren. They were friends of Zwingli, even disciples of Zwingli, yet conflict between them was coming. The issue of the conflict uh, immediately began over icons, not that they were on the opposite sides of the icon controversy, they were on the same side. Icons were a big part of worship in the Roman Catholic system, still are, right? Icons, just visible imagery. Zwingli had been teaching against iconography, which forced the Zurich City Council to have a formal meeting on the matter. On October 1523, Zwingli dominated the meeting, reasoning from the scriptures that the icons had to go away. The day was won by the anti-icon crowd. He and his radical reformers, they won the day. And they were happy. The radicals were happy with what had happened. Yet, in the win, there wasn't the discussion of time frames, of expectations of how this was supposed to work its way out as the icons necessarily still remained in the church buildings and throughout the city. So what happens next? This wasn't an issue for Zwingli. He was willing to give time and patience. He had won the day. The Lord's word had prevailed. In his mind, the icons would come down over a reasonable period of time dealing with people. But for the radicals, when do you suppose they wanted the icons to come down? Today. Today. Immediately. Well, Zwingli's patience was seen as capitulation, even after he did the lion's share to win the fight. They, they didn't sit well with the radicals waiting. So Zwingli, they, the, the radicals had saw Zwingli as divorcing truth from action. The radicals began to denounce Zwingli, calling him a compromiser, a hypocrite, and even an apostate. Those men included the names of Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, Balthasar Hubmeyer, and George Blaurock, among others. This conflict over icons at that point turns personal. Because now they've got accusations and allegations going against the man who was their 
principal discipler and the leader of, the, of one of the largest churches in, in Zurich at that time. This, this conflict over icons had turned personal. Zwingli had, had taught them to reject the icons, but not to be patient and wait for change. And the seed was sown for the next conflict. The next conflict arose over infant baptism during 1524, just a year later. The issue went to the city council as well, just like the previous issue over icons had gone to the city council for a decision. But now Zwingli was advocating for infant baptism. And his disciples, whom he had taught, were advocating against infant baptism. Who won the day? Zwingli did. The city council of Zurich demanded that what must be done is that the infants that are born uh, have to be brought in before the eighth day to be baptized at the pain of banishment. Also, any kind of preaching or worship services done outside the prerogative of the Zurich city council was forbidden, prohibited. Zwingli had a vision of a Zurich that was a united Christian community. He was pro-state church. So he didn't look down on Zurich's city council's response to the response of the radicals. What was the response of the radicals that the Zurich city council looked down on? Well, within one week of their decision, after that meeting that Zwingli won, the radicals went out and baptized according to what we, what we would say is a believer's baptism. They baptized 80 people in the next week. And the city council caught this. They saw what was going on. And they said, this is anarchy. And there's a consequence that's going to come with this. They arrested Grable and Mons and Blaurock and others. So how did the conflict end? How did this conflict end? It's a sad story. But it's an invaluable lesson for us regarding conflict and our responses to conflict. After being in prison and released on several occasions, Mons proved his willingness to violate the will of the Zurich City Council. So in kind, the Zurich Council decided on a maximum enforcement policy of its law to not baptize, which was rebaptism for them because all the infants were baptized. We didn't need to rebaptize. They made a law in 1526 that said if you are found rebaptizing anyone, you will be put to death by drowning. Felix Bonds was drowned by order of the Zurich City Council on January 5th, 1527. Christians murdering Christians. Please read with me James 4, 1-6. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, with that story of Blaurock and Mons and Grable and Zwingli fresh in your mind, what can we look at that situation and, and conclude what's going on there? On behalf of all parties involved, where was pride? Up. 
Where was humility? Down. Where was grace? Down. It seems that both sides of the equation in Zurich, pride was up, grace was down. What else does James 4.1 talk about? It talks about your pleasures, right? In verse 1, your deep heart desires are the source of all of your conflict. Conflict is a heart issue, just like we talked about last week. Anger is a heart issue. So let's get to the issue. Does everyone have a handout? Okay. Handouts are in the back, right here in the back. We pass those out to whoever might have missed that. First question that we'll take a look at. What is conflict? So let's go ahead and just toss around some definitions of conflict and get an idea of what's going on with conflict. Conflict really is military terminology. It's to strike or to fight against. You look in a a dictionary definition, the opening definition is fight, battle, war. Pretty straightforward. It's a military sense, physical force used to strike. Secondary definition would include this one. Competitive or opposing action of incompatibles. So we have tension. We have the knocking of heads. It's an antagonistic state. When I thought about this, I thought the, the Cold War with Russia. It didn't involve a lot of action, but it did include positioning. It included words, indirect actions of hostility. Another definition from that we can look at is, is this one. Mental struggle resulting from incompatible or opposing needs. You get that one? A mental struggle resulting from incompatible or opposing needs, drives, wishes. With this definition, we're getting personal, right? It's going inside. This has a lot of value for us as we understand total depravity. And we understand the fight inside of us between a renewed heart and the flesh that we still walk inside of. So here's the definition that I want you to see on your page. I want you to walk through this with me. Conflict is this. Conflict is all manner of wrath directed at agitators opposing kingdom advance. All manner of wrath directed at agitators opposing kingdom advance. I like these words, particularly wrath, agitators, and kingdom. It really helps to understand conflict. requires wrath, agitators, and kingdoms. Because this conforms to our biblical understanding of God's conflict with Satan and man's conflict with God, Satan, and other men. And the reason why is because we are all kingdom builders. You have a kingdom, a personal kingdom that you're trying to advance daily. What's Christ calling you to do in Matthew chapter 9, 23? To deny that kingdom. Pick up your cross, which is symbolic of joining his kingdom. But do we do that? Do we always deny ourselves? Do we, do we deny the self? So there we are. We're, we're stuck and bound for conflict. We, we want our kingdom to advance. We're kingdom builders. Everybody is set out to get what they want. Their lusts, their passions, the deep-seated desires of their heart. So what does God think of conflict? What does God think about your conflicts on a daily basis? Well, first, God is for his kingdom. See how I pivoted the conversation? Is God, what, what does God think about conflict? First, let's just go with this. God is for his kingdom. The definition of conflict had kingdom advance, and we're going to pick up the idea that God is for his kingdom. Consequently, all agitators of his perfect kingdom will face then perfect wrath, right? Conflict became necessary due to rebellion to God's kingdom. And the defense of righteousness from unrighteousness is required in God's kingdom. 
How amazing, though, is it in the patience and long-suffering of God? His patience and long-suffering. He could bring wrath instantly, thoroughly, but he has demonstrated long-suffering that he might show us the great glory of his immeasurable grace. Just as we had sung a few minutes ago. Conflict with Satan and conflict with man have not thwarted God's kingdom advance. Creature rebellion is not an issue for the God of the universe. Rather, conflict has brought opportunity. It has brought contrast through which the brilliance of holiness and righteousness can be seen, experienced, and understood. Conflict then becomes the black backdrop against which the glories of righteousness are presented like a diamond sparkling and shining brilliantly in the face of the, of the greatest darkness. So God is not for conflict. He is for his kingdom. He is for righteousness. God made man in his own image. We're designed specifically to radiate God's glory all over the face of the earth in righteousness. But the effect of the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden created exactly the opposite. We don't radiate righteousness. All too often, we're known for radiating unrighteousness. Our rebellion sparks our greatest conflict, and mankind has been continually trying to build his own kingdom, a kingdom based in rebellion, rebellion directly against God. This is each of us. We're all little kingdom makers trying to build our own kingdom. We expect others also in this process as we're building our kingdom. We expect others to aid the building of our kingdom. We expect that. How futile is that? <laughs> and when they don't, what, what do we, how do we respond? It's like a nuclear bomb just went off in our life. How dare you? you know, now we get angry. Rage and conflict ensue, and our wrath is going to be felt. And this is where you need to understand James 1.20, which says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Look back again at the definition of conflict. Conflict is all manner of wrath directed at agitators opposing kingdom advance. This definition works to define the conflict arising from our anger, which lives in our heart. But for clarity, it's helpful if we add a word when we're thinking about human conflict. When we're thinking about human conflict, it's helpful to add one word and to add it in two places. What one word would help to add clarity to this to this definition, because the definition could stand, but you really have to understand righteousness to make that definition work, and it only belongs to God. So we have to qualify this for us. What one word would you add to that and put it in two places? Anybody want to take a stab at it? It's going to be. It's going to head toward the un. It's going to be what what we do when. But it's not unbelievers and believers. I'm thinking of one word with that definition, and it is an adjective to qualify. Wrath and kingdom. What adjective would you need to qualify wrath and kingdom? Unrighteousness. If you put unrighteousness in that definition, it helps to clarify how you understand conflict. We direct our unrighteous wrath at agitators opposed to our unrighteous kingdom. So this definition works well if you can remember there is one who is righteously engaged in conflict. And then there is every created being on earth who engages unrighteously in conflict. God is not pleased with man's unrighteousness, and God is not pleased with conflict among men. 
Okay, so turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. While you do that, I want you to consider Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You're going to go to 1 Corinthians 6, and I'm going to talk about Matthew 5. I'm going to, I'm going to bring some ideas to your mind from the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to 1 Corinthians 6. There's something there. I want, I want to bring this into the context of believers in 1 Corinthians 6. Before we do that, Matthew 5 says this. Jesus was calling his Jewish audience out of their religiosity that they thought might save them and calling them to a standard of perfection that they wildly failed to meet, wildly failed to meet. He says to this, this to them in Matthew 5.21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The standard they had known was murder. You can't murder. Great, they would think. Great, this is fine. I must be good with God. I haven't killed anybody. But Jesus says that this standard is only part of the standard. How come you missed the totality of the standard? Jesus says, I have the whole standard. Brace yourselves. This might throw you back to remember that perfection is the standard. My standard is hell for those guilty of anger toward a brother. And hell for those guilty of ugly speech toward their brother. The standard that Jesus called them to was a standard of perfect righteousness. Christ went further in Matthew 5.44 and said this, Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. And in 548, he called them to the perfection. He said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Where'd the standard go? Way up. Up to perfection. Not just don't murder, but up to perfection. With each little area, little opportunity for conflict in your life. Perfection, then, only comes in the removal of hostility of all anger, and goes to the impossible step of us actually loving our enemies. So what does God think about conflict? Well, for God, there's no place for it. It's grievous to him. He wants his children to have no part in it. So much does he want his children to have no part in it. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 6 because I love this passage. This text really helps me to understand how grievous it is for God's children to have conflict with one another. In the realm of conflict, this, this one stands out for me as, as far as in the Christian context. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 9. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his brother, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to con- constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that... Before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. 
Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The questions in that text are absolutely profound. Why defend your kingdom, he says? Why engage your wrath? Why stir up conflict? Why not rather pursue peace, even if it costs you something? Why not rather afford grace? Why can't we be like Jesus who pleased God? And as he was reviled the most, he didn't revile in return. He suffered without conflict. How does our conflict start? How does our conflict start? What is the process of conflict? How does it begin? You know, what's amazing to me is you can take a drive down Grand and and hit the beach and go along the Pacific Coast Highway and come to the Monarch Butterfly Groves. You've seen them. Amazingly, down there on the billboards and the placards, they've got the life cycle of the Monarch Butterflies. And you can come to find out that they land there at a particular time of year Amazingly, our government and colleges, universities send scientists down there and spend millions of dollars to find all that they can about the monarch butterfly, to know the life cycle of the monarch butterfly, to help to better preserve the life of the monarch butterfly. Isn't that fantastic? Aren't you so thankful? The life of the butterfly has been preserved for generation after generation. Meanwhile, sin abounds. Meanwhile, we're fighting with neighbors. Lawsuits are on a rampage. It's incredible what one neighbor will do to the next, let alone what grade school kids are doing with grade school kids in the first grade. I'm going to show you the cycle of conflict. Not the cycle of the monarch butterflies' lives. The cycle of conflict that rages inside of all human beings and is the source of all evil, wickedness, thefts, murders, and wars for which the government doesn't care to spend a dime They're not interested in in knowing the truth of the human condition, and that's just fine with me, because we're the ones who are. We are interested, and we must be interested. Why? Because the cycle of conflict relates directly to the righteousness of God. The cycle of conflict is like a train on a circular track. Think of it like a train around a Christmas tree or, or the train running across the top at Doc Bernstein's ice cream shop, where a few of you were at earlier tonight. Just kidding. Your heart is the train on the track. Your heart is the train on the track. The train has five stops. Conflict begins in your heart. We need to walk through these five stops in the cycle of conflict that your heart makes stops at. Your heart is wicked and sin-filled. It is the epicenter of all conflict. Your heart is the sponge that soaks up all kinds of influences. Those influences shape the contents of your heart. Therefore, influences are the first stop of the train of your heart on the cycle of conflict. Influences. At this stop, the heart is taking in information and ideas. The contents of your heart are driven and shaped by influences. And they create in you. They create inside of your heart thoughts and desires, lusts and passions which in turn generate actions, repeated actions. What do you call repeated actions? Patterns, habits. Habits then become stop number two 
In the train of your heart, in the cycle of conflict, you create habits. At this stop, the heart is exporting action, exporting habits driven by desires, patterns of behavior. This might work well if you live in a deserted island or if you weren't made in the image of God, but you were made in the image of God. And it's expected that your behavior is going to match a righteous pattern, but it doesn't. And you don't live alone. You live in a context with people, people who also have patterns and habits and desires. Now, what are the chances that any two people living right now have exactly the same desires, exactly the same from beginning to end? Zero, right? Zero chance. You can run with someone for a while, but at some point in time, there's likely going to be a difference of opinion. So in the context of life, there will always be people with different desires. So what is the chance for contact between two kingdoms, between two hearts? What's the chance for contact with you and somebody else? 100%, right? 100%, we're going to have contact. So contact with other people becomes stop number three of the train of your heart on the cycle of conflict. Contact with others. Does contact immediately mean hostility? No. Does it force conflict? Does contact force conflict? Does it immediately make conflict? No. It's just contact, right? But contact immediately shines a light on differences, right? Contact shines a light on differences. The differences in desires are exposed when contact is made. And I already said, contact is guaranteed. So you're already going to know about differences between you and other people. It's coming to you. We'll talk about differences in a little bit, but differences don't demand conflict. And differences, can differences be beneficial? We'll get to that. We'll get to that shortly. For now, contact with people introduces differences into your heart. And these differences lead to like this thought process. They lead to this moment in time, this instance, when you have to process and do something with what your heart is perceiving as differences. So the contact illuminates the differences, and the differences are forcing an instance, a point of decision. So instances are the stop number four in the, of the train of your heart in the cycle of conflict. What are instances? They are the events in our lives, the decision points, the point of decision, the right now and the right now to continue to listen to continue to process information or to write down information. They are the circumstances that God uses to squeeze our hearts to see what influences we've been soaking up and to allow the river of our hearts to pour out all over life's events. Whatever's inside is going to get squeezed and it's going to pour out all over everybody. Instances are the point of decision, either the decision to honor God or the decision to honor self. Now, that's a, that's a big point that I just made right there, and I don't want to mitigate it to, or, or, or minimize it. I, wa- I want to bring that into the fullness of its light. Is it reasonable for me to declare to you that there are only two ways to live, the righteous way and the wicked way? Is that safe? Okay, so if that's the case, then is it reasonable for me to also say that there's only two kinds of actions that you can make in your life? The action to glorify God and the action to glorify self. Is it okay if I just make that dichotomy and say that's the way that life is? Life is either righteousness or wickedness, and life is either deciding for God or for self. 
Safe? Fair? Right? Okay. At the point of decision, you're going to do one of those two things. You're either going to honor God or you're going to honor yourself. Instances create the opportunity for a decision. So, the cycle of conflict so far is the journey of the train of our heart with its first stop at influence. The second stop is making of habits and the exporting of habits. The third stop is receiving contact, making contact with the outside world. And the fourth stop is the instances. The first stop takes in, the second stop puts out, the third stop takes in, and the fourth stop puts out. See that? And now you have to make a choice between good and bad, between righteousness and unrighteousness. And because this is a cycle of conflict, which choice do we choose? Which path do we go down? Do we always choose righteousness? It's a cycle of conflict, so we're going to choose unrighteousness. We choose self. And here is what we choose. We choose to be offended. When we run into differences with someone else's kingdom, at each instance, we can choose to either honor God or honor self. And we can choose to be offended or not be offended. It's at this point that the conversation pivots where it could go toward righteousness. You choose to be offended and that's what keeps you inside of the cycle of conflict. The instance itself didn't demand that you choose to be offended. The differences of that person and the contact with them didn't demand that you choose to be offended. Your influences and and the patterns and habits that you've made, they didn't demand. It's something that at that moment you've chosen. You've chosen to be offended. This is stop number five for the train of your heart on the cycle of conflict is the point of offense, the point where you decide, I have been offended. We choose to believe that the contact and the differences of others have invaded our kingdom, that our will has not come and our will is not being done. You know what's funny about this is that we wear. We wear the results of this on our bodies physically. You can see them in our faces. You can see them in our appearance. You can see them in our stance. We wear our offense on us. And even if you wear it on you, and even if the next thing you do is you're going you're to blurt it out of your mouth, you're going to blurt your offense, the, the nature and the gravity of the offense that you've received, you're going to say something out of your mouth that's going to indicate how offended you are. Some of us can hide that. Some of us can mask it. Some of us can wear a, a face on the outside that hides the offense. We can hide or conceal the body language so that the offense isn't perfectly well known. We can keep our mouth closed and have self-control so that the offense isn't totally well known? Is the offense not there because of those things? Or does the offense live on? It lives on, right? Where at? In your heart. Who can see that? You bet he can. Have you sinned? If, If you have been offended by someone else and that sin is down in your heart where you know that you are not happy, you've sinned and God sees it. He knows perfectly what's going on in your mind and your heart. Your thoughts will be revealed. You cannot hide from him. Our offenses cannot be completely concealed. At this point, the point of offense, conflict has come. 
Conflict is here. When you've reached the point of offense and you're offended, conflict is there. Whether you're hiding it internally or whether you've already taken the step of exposing it out to everyone else, you have conflict because your kingdom has been confronted and impacted and you don't like it. You have decided that these differences and this instance in life are sufficient warrant and reason to begin an assault against the agitators of your kingdom. Conflict begins in the heart. It is fed by the cycle of conflict, which includes these steps. The step to receive influences, the exporting of habits, the receiving of contact, the instances that produce a desire for decisions and the desire or the choice to be offended. So if you get caught in this cycle, do you see, well, real quick, do you see then how if you, if you make the choice to be offended, do you see how that choice to be offended becomes the next influence in your life that starts the cycle all over again? Do you see that? If you make the choice to be offended with that situation, that now, that circumstance, that instance in life is now an influence that starts the conversation all over again. How are you going to handle with it? How are you going to deal with that? It's a wicked pattern and cycle to get caught in. How do you break the cycle of conflict? The first place to break the cycle of conflict is at the decision to be offended. This is your choice. Your heart chooses to be offended. So instead, you can choose grace, benevolence, patience, or long-suffering. At the instances in life, the point of decision, you can decide to go with righteousness instead of unrighteousness. Second way to break the cycle of conflict. Do all differences and disagreements demand conflict? We already talked about this. I told you I'd get back to it. Here we are. Do do differences and disagreements and these instances in life, do they demand conflict? No, they don't. So you can decide that maybe differences can be Helpful and even good for you. You might be thinking, well, where, where's, where are some places where I've seen some differences? Well, you know what? If you live in an American context, maybe you've never had Thai food before. And maybe no one's ever sat with you and ordered red pineapple curry with tofu. That might be different for you. It might create conflict with you. But you know what? You can make friends with that dish. It's good for you. You know, and you might not know how to say pad CU. But that can be a friend of yours as well. It doesn't have to be conflict. If it comes from a different culture or a different context, it's not meant for your evil. You can look at differences, and they can be there for your good. Consider that differences might just do these things. It's a list of them here. Differences might do these things. Differences might make you search the Scriptures. Differences might cause you to think more carefully about what and how you believe. Differences might make us work harder to communicate more effectively. Differences will produce in us maturity and endurance. Differences confront you with your faith, your faith regarding Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. Differences might provide opportunities to serve and prefer others. Differences might give you opportunities to glorify God. Differences are not a problem. Differences are a blessing. A third way to break out of the cycle of conflict is to change your influences. 
Change your influences. Your friends may need to change. Depends on how much you want to get out of conflict and how much you want to get out of anger. Are you willing to change your friends? Are you willing to move away from things that are oh so familiar and go to something different to get out of the opportunity to sin through conflict and anger? What about your radio station or your favorite internet pages? The app that's most used on your phone? The voices that you allow into your daily conversation? Who's the person that text messages you the most? Is that a helpful influence in your life? Is that always a positive and beneficial dialogue? In the counseling room at times, I'll come across someone who has a desire for multiple counselors. And they'll say to me, the Bible says, a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. And they'll heap up unto themselves the biblical counselor and the psychotherapist and the psychiatrist. But if my counselor is at odds with another counselor, a decision has to be made about what influence to keep and what influence to dump. I'm going to ask that of somebody. Who is going to be your primary influence? You have to choose and vet and be careful about the influences that you allow into your life. Not everybody's telling you the truth, and you know that. So you have to be discerning. So you change influences. The cycle of conflict, then, can be broken at several points. Maybe someone's asking, how can I avoid conflict altogether? There are sinful and God-honoring ways to avoid conflict. We'll look at a few of these. Let's consider first how to avoid conflict in a sinful way. You know, recently you've been hearing from this uh, movement in our society called the hashtag MeToo movement. It's uh, folks that are uh, have experienced sexual harassment, usually male to female sexual harassment in the workplace. Interestingly, you know, by the way, first, before I say anything else, it is wrong to sexually harass anybody. Okay, that, that's, that's an obvious one, right? Okay. But interestingly, the instances that these women are reporting date back many years, which means that these women experienced conflict and just kept quiet about it. Okay, I want you to agree with me that just keeping quiet is a sinful way to avoid conflict. You agree? Just keeping quiet is a sinful way to avoid conflict. Next, Husbands and wives, we play this game with each other. One spouse says something we don't like, and we choose to stay away from the the other one. We choose to stay away from them. Avoidance. We just flee. This is sinful as well. Staying away from one another. It may avoid conflict, but it does not meet the righteous standard of God. He wants you to, if you have, if, if you... If you're going to go worship God in the temple and you're going to bring your gift to the, uh, to the temple and it's there at the temple that you remember that you have something against one of your brothers, leave your gift there at the temple and go back to your brother and find him and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift before God. Further, conflict can be avoided by changing the subject when confronted. Or needing to confront sin. This is sinful. Changing the subject. We need to stay on subject and seek a resolution. So we don't just duck and weave and decide to pick up areas where there's conflict when we want to. We, we don't change the subject. Also, hiding information and covering over sin. 
Those are means that people use to avoid conflict. But neither helps to uncover or expose heart issues leading to conflict. Lastly, I'll I'll present one that we probably do very often. Again, sinful. Allowing bitterness to reign. Sometimes conflict can be avoided if you just hold a grudge for for now. I'm just going to be angry. I'm going to be angry, but sin not. That's a righteous thing to do. I'm going to be angry, but sin not. And when you do that, you tuck away a root of bitterness inside of your heart. Well, that's sinful, to tuck away a root of bitterness in your heart. And you decided you're not going to say anything about it, but you know what's going to happen with that? What's going to happen with that? What's that little seed going to do when you tuck that away into your heart over the next month or two months? What, and, and then ultimately, there's a bigger conflict someday, and what do you want to do with that one? Now that that little tomato has grown up from a tiny little cherry tomato, and it's the whopper. It's the whopper tomato. What do you want to do with that guy? You want to pick that guy up and throw that right in the face of your spouse, right? At the next conflict. Because you tucked it away and you saved it. You put in a root of bitterness. This is a sinful way. Allowing bitterness to reign is a sinful way to try to avoid conflict. So what are some God-honoring ways to avoid conflict? Turn in your Bibles to Romans 12. Turn to Romans 12. You know, as Christians, we should continually be ready to seek, appreciate, and understand other people. Seek, appreciate, understand other people. To get their perspectives, to know their lives, and not allow differences to create hostility among us. How many of us have family members that we disagree with theologically? Everybody. (laughs) Do you allow this to get hostile? Or are you patient, kind, and curious to better understand their position. See, we we can avoid conflict by being kind and treating others as we wish to be treated. So we seek to to know, appreciate, understand others. We seek to do that. That's what, what our desire needs to be. And that will help to avoid conflict. Next, we need to gather much data about people, which means listening long and speaking less. A third thing, in matters of sin, we need to be patient and diligent in confrontation, offering grace, but diligence is to say, we're not going to let things go, that things do, sin does matter. Fourth, in matters of preference, if you're going to avoid conflict, you've got everything in, in, with regard to preference, to prefer their way. You can just prefer how they do it. So if it's a preference issue, that's one way to avoid conflict. God is honored when we defer to others if it's just a matter of choice. Fifthly, we can continually demonstrate love and care even in disagreements. We can avoid conflict if we are continually demonstrating love and care even in disagreements. So the question here would be, if I were to talk to your brother-in-law, sister-in-law, after your last confrontation, how would they tell me your disposition was in that conversation? Would they use words like loving and caring? Or if I asked them about loving and caring, would you get a check mark? Would you get a rating of 7, 8, 9, or 10? Or would they say, loving and caring? I've never got that from them before. Where are we at with loving and caring? Sixthly, To avoid conflict, we can refuse to sin in communication, 
returning gentle and gracious answers in the face of angry and hurtful words. You know, this point, I have to turn to the brothers in the room, the husband, the men in the room. We're in charge of the household. If the conversation is going to happen, we're the ones that get the opportunity to kick it off. And when you kick off the conversation and you start a conversation and you think you've got righteousness and it's all keyed up and it's ready to go and you offer kind words, you have to expect that your wife might not be there with you. You have to expect that she might not understand the angle that you're coming at and she might come with hostility. So you need to expect that. Expect that there might be hostility coming back at you. Because I know what we do too often. We go to this conversation, this conflict resolution with our wife, and we say something like, Honey, I really want to talk about these things. I wronged you earlier and, and I, I, want to, I want to make this right. And you approach the conversation like that, and she'll say something like, well, you always do this. This is such a pattern with you. And you feel anger and, and vitriol and hatred coming at you. And what's your immediate inclination to do? Defend, defend. Well, how dare you? Is there a different opportunity when that situation comes at you? Can you expect that that's going to come at you? Yes, you can. You can expect that. You hope for different. You prayed for different. But if you get that in return, is there an opportunity in that moment to offer something kind, something gentle, something that points everybody on Christ's righteousness, something that accepts the blame but marches towards conflict resolution? That's where I want you to be. I want you to be men who are not only willing to offer a first instance of graciousness and restoration, but who understand that if you don't have a partner that's immediately ready to walk down that road, that you can come at it with a second instance of love and graciousness and a third instance of love and graciousness and a fourth instance of love and graciousness. Until when? Until love and graciousness are abounding from all parties, right? Because for the brothers in this room, what can you trust or what do you know about your spouse? They've made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, many of them. And if they've made a a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, you have someone who wants restoration. Should be more willing for us to pursue, to, to refuse to sin in communication and return gentle and gracious answers because we know that Christ's glory is at stake in our marriage and in our own personal lives. Remember, we are those people who can be deceived. You can deceive me. I sit in a counseling room over here all week long. Do you think that I'm told the truth every day, every time, every hour someone comes in and sits with me? Absolutely not. I know that you'll make a a statement to me, and then two days later, three days later, you'll violate everything you said to me in there. But what does love do? 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes all things and love hopes all things. It gets right down into this instance. It shouldn't be a problem for us to be stolen from. It shouldn't be a problem for us to not be repaid. It shouldn't be a problem for us to be mistreated, even verbally abused, because we understand, Romans 8.28, that God uses all of these things to create situations for the good of those who love him. So we are not the least bit concerned with earthly loss. Not the least bit concerned with earthly loss. But we must be keenly aware of the potential loss of value in our witness and testimony of Jesus Christ. We must be keenly aware of the potential loss of our testimony. We need to be more interested in God's glory and the good of others than in building and maintaining our own kingdom. 
Paul's exhortation in Romans. You turn there, you want to read it with me? We will, verses 9 through 21. And it covers a lot of the very same things that I just said. This, this exhortation should sit well on your heart. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. In verse 9, 12 verse 9. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how we beat conflict. So if we've been engaged in conflict, how do we resolve conflict? How do we resolve conflict? You can turn your Bibles to Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 5. Well, first, just as in avoiding conflict, now in resolving conflict, there are ways that you can do this sinfully. And there are ways that you can do this biblically in a God-honoring fashion. So first, in regard to the things that you shouldn't do to resolve a conflict, do not, number one, do not assume that time will heal it. This leaves too much unsaid. It creates great opportunity for bitterness At the same time, it establishes patterns and habits of behavior and communication that are rampantly sinful. It's a sinful strategy to assume that time will heal. Number two, don't try to bury the conflict or pretend that it never happened. Perhaps something else immediately comes up that will be more pressing. Does that mean that the prior conflict is dead? Conflict on Tuesday with an employee. Wife gets a diagnosis. On Wednesday, takes up the rest of the week, you forget to talk to the employee. What's the first thing that should happen on Monday morning when you walk back into the office? Pick up the conversation about the conflict from the previous Tuesday. There's every opportunity to resolve conflict at any point in time. Don't let them go. There's opportunity to try to be at peace with all men in a moment, and that might take time. It might take a month or two or three. Heck, it might take six months. You're patient and you're gracious. You're patient and you're gracious, but in your waiting, you should be thinking and pleading and the Lord convicting you that relationship is not right. Let's make it right. So we don't bury conflict or pretend they never happen. Number three, don't punish the other person until they change and, and they take all the blame on themselves. Silent treatment is, is not effective at producing godly guilt. Number four, don't wait for the other person to initiate the process of resolution and restoration. Don't don't wait for the other person. 
Silence should burden your heart. Unresolved conflict should burden your heart. I, I quoted this passage earlier. I'll read it to you now. Matthew five twenty three to 24. Therefore, he says, Matthew, quoting Christ Jesus who said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. God wants the horizontal relationships taken care of. He wants you at peace with all men. It's a dishonor to him to show up to worship on Sunday morning and put a tithe in the offering plate when you just obliterated the relationship with your wife the day before or with your brother or with your child. Now we need to consider solid biblical ways of conflict resolution. And the number one way that I'm going to point to you is the process of peace. Someone tell me, because we've talked about it a lot. Where do I look when I'm looking for the process of peace? It's somewhere close by. Where is it at? Where is it at? I've seen hands go up. High five? <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's on your hand. And t- someone tell me, let's go. What's number one? What's the little guy in the process of peace? It is confess. confess. What's number two in the process of peace? It is repent. Number three, the high point of the process of peace. What is that one? The high point is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the high point. Number four, the fourth point in in the process of peace and restoring relationships is to do just that. Restore. Restore. Whatever it takes to restore. If I have to buy back a cattle and give you 20% of my wages, whatever it takes, I'm willing to restore. Finally, the fifth one, the opposable digit, which you should have done in the first place, which hooks it all back around and connects the whole thing. Obey. Obey. The whole process had to start because you weren't obeying. And at the end, it's a commitment and a reassertion that I will obey. To head to this process and, and get through this process, you must pray. Point number two, you must pray. You can pray alone. You, you might even pray with the offendee. You can pray with the elders of the church or close friends. Then you Go. You go to the person with whom you have conflict. You express a desire to resolve the conflict for the glory of God. And you let them know that from the outset. I'm here because of the glory of God. Becomes an immediate evangelistic session, a witness, a testimony. I'm here for the glory of God. Clearly, not all people want the glory of God. And some have their own ideas about what God's glory looks like. How appropriate is it then to have those who truly want God's glory leading the discussion? about restoration and about God's glory. That's you, right? That's us. We're going to do this. We will lead the conversations about God's glory. Again, carefully choosing our words as we approach these conversations, navigating a conversation of restoration. We begin with the process of peace. It works with God. It, wor- it should work with men, right? The process of peace. Isn't that, doesn't this work with God? Isn't this exactly what you do with God? Does anybody not do this with God? this is what we do with God this works with men as well discuss the issues the differences and the instances that cause conflict you want to get to heart attitudes motives desires and you want to be honest with these things put your heart before somebody be willing for them to shred whatever you say be willing for that because who's your ultimate judge your provider, your protector, it's God. And in saying your heart, what are you saying to them? Hey, guess what? It's okay for you to share your heart with me also. It is helpful then even to decide what type of issue you're dealing with. 
there's four kinds. Is it a preference issue? Is it a sin issue? Is it a conscience issue? Is it a wisdom issue? Both sides can offer input for what the steps might be for restoration. I really need you to do this. It would be really helpful if you were to say that. Both sides can offer input into restoration. You can plan a time to discuss things again, really just doing cleanup on the work, the heavy lifting of doing the process of peace because this is heavy lifting. If you can make it through this, the process of peace, that's the heavy lifting in relationships. You end your time with prayer. You know, God will be honored in doing this. This is the step to get out of conflict. You know, conflicts don't have to rule the world. They don't have to rule our lives, but they will. They do and they will. What's most important is that we know how to get out and why we're going to get out. We're going to get out for the glory of God. We're going to get out through the process of peace. We don't have to engage in conflict. We can't avoid conflict by being more gracious, more patient, more gentle. What I'd be interested in talking with anybody about afterwards is if you're thinking about these things and thinking about conflict and you've got questions about how that works with a conflict that you had, we can turn it open. I'll turn off the mics and we'll shut things down here. But I'm, I'm willing to open up a conversation, a forum right now for what conflict looks like in your life personally. No one has anything. We don't have anything to offer. That's fine. But we'll, we can tackle conflict or come see me personally because that's what I like to do. Talk about conflict. Talk about restoration and resolution with that. Why don't we pray? Father in heaven, it is our great pleasure to know you, to walk with you, to trust you, to know that you have orchestrated all the events of our lives, all the circumstances, very intentionally. Because it is your aim through these circumstances to squeeze out of us every ounce of glory that you deserve. And Father, to that we say squeeze hard. Squeeze out of us every bit of opportunity for your glory that we try to keep from you in our unrighteousness. We do that when we have conflict with others, when we try to make it all about our kingdom, our way, our will, our desires. And Lord, with this group of folks at this church, we ask that you shut us down. Help us to deny ourselves. Help us to pick up our cross and follow our Savior daily. It is with him that we will find peace and we will be able to avoid conflict and restore conflict when it arises. Lord, we thank you for this powerful process of peace purchased in the blood of Christ. It is our great blessing to know you. We treasure these things. Help us put them to use in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.